Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning on this 8th of February. Where in the word are you today? We're going to jump right in with two doxologies in the book of Romans. So, you know, um, much of where I am in the word is influenced by where I am in terms of my reading through the Bible, um, my 2021 commitment to read through the scriptures. So I have daily Bible reading based on sort of that schedule. Um, I have, uh, I'm always in a book with my family, and then I am in a book wherever we are in terms of the congregation where I worship, and we are in a, what I will now describe as very long-term study of the book of Romans, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. And so we arrived yesterday at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, and it is a doxology, but it's not the only doxology in the book of Romans. There's also one that comes at the very end of Romans Uh, at the conclusion of chapter 16, at the end of the book, where one might expect to see a doxology. And so I thought, well, you know what, let's just, uh, let's focus on this in the Where in the Word segment this morning. So um, where in the Word are you today? Let's look at the two doxologies in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 11, 33 to 36, Paul, after spending 11 chapters on theology, now moves to doxology. So you could think of this as the from theology to doxology doxology in the book of Romans versus the doxology that comes at the end of the book of Romans. So here's the one in chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then at the conclusion of the book of Romans, we get another doxology in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 16 of Romans. To him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. You and I might recognize the doxology as praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let today be a day of doxology, a day of glory words to the Lord our God. Amen and amen. Lots of coronavirus news to get to this morning. Uh, So we are going to jump right in with those headlines with Dr. Zach Jenkins. We'll be right back. Hey, 98.6, it's good to have you back again. Oh, hey. 
All right, joining us again today on this Monday morning, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Zach, welcome back. Good morning. All right, so we got um, all kinds of COVID headlines today. Let's um, let's start with this. It seems like the 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 thread in the headlines is variants. So talk with us about some of the headlines related to the variants of COVID-19 and how that is affecting decision-making and practices um, and even the distribution of some vaccines. Well, I think probably the first thing to do is to start off with what a variant is. Um, and really what we think about with respect to viruses as they replicate themselves, if you think about them almost like a, uh, a printer and, and you're sending instructions to a printer, um, what, what happens is sometimes when you print things off on a printer, it doesn't always come out the way you intend. And so viruses are much the same way when they hijack your, your cells to produce more of themselves. They will sometimes create these, these offshoots that aren't what was originally intended. What happens, though, is sometimes those offshoots happen to be more fit. They survive a little bit better. Uh, maybe they, they have a, a bit better function as far as how far they spread. And so they tend to dominate um, as the virus continues to kind of move through a population. And that's what we're seeing right now. So m- most specifically, we've heard a lot about the variants out of the United Kingdom. We've heard some out of uh, South Africa. There's one in particular we're concerned with. And there's also one in Brazil. And we'll continue to hear more about these the more that COVID spreads. And I think it's important to recognize the more people this moves through, the more variants we will see. Uh, and it's so part of the policy making now and part of the decision making is all coming down to this idea of, well, we, as we push vaccines out, that slows the rate, at least we hope, of viral spread, which then slows the rate of new variants. And why that's so critical is these variants can either be more infectious, they can be more deadly in some cases, or I think certainly for us, they could also potentially escape some of our vaccine. And we're already seeing that a little bit with the South African variant. Yeah, so that brings us to the headline that Astrovenic uh, or the or South Africa is no longer distributing or suspending uh, the administration of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, because it does not appear to be uh, uh, particularly uh, robust against that variant. Um, also, tons of headlines related to um, education. Um, and maybe just touch on that. I mean, I, I would basically just make the observation that people's confidence um, in the role of public education or public schools in America seems to be really eroding rapidly in some surprising places. That probably gets beyond the conversation that you and I can have um, specifically mm-hmm. about um, uh, about COVID and schools, but maybe just touch on um, what's happening on that front. Well, I have uh, long been of the opinion that we really need to have children back in schools for a variety of reasons. Um, there, there are some things to consider, for example, if you live in a particularly rural part of the country or have a lot of blue-collar workers in your area, it's very challenging for them to work while they have to figure out how to get their children through school virtually. Um, obviously, not everyone has access to the Internet and things like that, too, so that's another barrier. But really, the evidence is showing and has shown for a long time, and I know we've talked about it before, that the risk of children spreading the virus to each other is pretty minimal. They're not our big spreaders. Schools don't seem to be the primary source that COVID's coming from. It's all the, the smaller gatherings that occur outside of schools. And children are, are at the lowest risk when it comes to COVID in general. I mean, if you look at the total number of deaths, it's something like 0.08% that have come from our very young children. 
So I, I think all the evidence would point to the fact that schools are helpful on that front. Now, you brought up another interesting point about confidence in public schools. I, I do think one thing we're seeing a lot is so much of the decision-making has been left up to individual districts and states. Uh, my wife is a third grade teacher and her district, for example, is handling it a little bit differently than their neighboring district. So, so you've got some that are saying, well, we're all remote or we're all hybrid. And then others are saying, well, we're all in person and here's, here's kind of how we're going to proceed. It, it sends a lot of mixed messages to the public. And I think that's what really kind of erodes that confidence. Yeah, I think that we're going to see uh, a long overdue reassessment of the way we provide for public education in the United States. And in my view, that's a really that that's that might be a positive outcome um, of all of this. Let's talk about um, double masking before we go to a break. Um, you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm not a fan of masking anyway. And then uh, yeah. and now we have the suggestion that maybe I should wear two. Can you talk with me a little bit about this? You know, I first started seeing some of that come out, and just to, to give you perspective, in healthcare, um, particularly with uh, some kinds of infectious organisms, we actually do wear two masks. Um, so tuberculosis is actually a great example where they would do something like that. But truth be told, I, while I do think that there's a lot of benefit when it comes to COVID potentially, right, with wearing another mask, it's a filter, right? You're, you're adding another filter on top of a filter of course you're going to block viral particles that way. I, I think it's kind of the wrong message to send at this point in time. Uh, that's my personal opinion on that subject because we're already struggling getting people to do one mask or mm -hmm. to wear one correctly. And the way that you, you gain public confidence and you get their buy-in is not to say, by the way, you already don't like this restriction, let me add another on top of that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, no, I, guess, I, completely, I completely agree. Yeah, you feel the same way. <laughs> I feel well, the same way. What, what I would what I would say to people in general is if you feel that you're going to be around people that are at risk or you are at a, at a significant risk and you want to engage with them still, maybe consider it then. That's something you can consider. You don't have to consider, but it, you, could, you could do it. Outside yeah. of that, we just don't have evidence to say how much of a benefit there is. I th it's all theoretical. Yeah. All right. Um, and then um, when we come back from the break, uh, so – my, you know, now in their 80s parents have had both, um, you know, they, they got both doses of their vaccine and they would prefer to now not wear a mask in many environments and, and occasions. However, uh, they are hearing that it's important to still wear a mask after getting your COVID vaccine. So when we come back, can, can you talk with us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Fantastic. That's up next with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We'll be right back. All right, I'm, I'm moving through a litany of headlines related to COVID with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. It's sort of our Monday morning catch-up on this uh, topic. So let's talk a little bit, um, Zach, about whether or not it's important to wear a mask after getting your COVID vaccine. So it's a, it's a great question. And I think where we need to probably start that discussion is, is sort of looking at the studies themselves. So um, specifically, the Pfizer and the Moderna trial for, for those vaccines, the way they were designed is they were looking at the prevention of severe disease. And if you're thinking about getting the most bang for your buck out of a vaccine, you want to prevent hospitalizations and death. And that's kind of what their big focus was. Um, they, they didn't really focus on transmission, especially asymptomatic spread of the virus in those studies. 
Although the Moderna, what they did do is they took some swabs to kind of figure out how much virus is present in people. And what they found in the Moderna trial is it was about one one thousandth or so of what the original like viral count would have been after people had had both vaccines that that was kind of what, what they were seeing. What where we're sitting with these public recommendations right now is the the CDC, as well as um, Dr. Fauci, who's gotten up, he's gone up publicly and said this. He, he believes, and the CDC is suggesting this too, that we, we obviously can't say it prevents transmission yet because the data isn't there. That part's true. Um, but when we look at the actual evidence from that trial, of course, you did see a reduction in the amount of virus people were carrying. And more recently, there was a study done out of Israel, I think there were about 400,000 people, and they, were, they took the Pfizer vaccine. And the, the group that actually received the vaccine, only 256 or so actually ended up getting COVID following all the vaccines. Um, the placebo arm, the group that didn't get treated, they ended up having like almost 16,000 cases. So I think what that shows us is that the prevention of transmission is there. So with all that said, I guess my opinion has been for some time, if you're on other people that are vaccinated and you're vaccinated yourself, well, of course it would make sense that you wouldn't have to do masks and everything like that. I think where we get into a little bit more of a challenge though, is if you're maybe around people that are at an exceptionally high risk because it doesn't necessarily fully eliminate transmission. Um, that's kind of where the data is pointing at this point. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you pointed to the, to the Israel study because I'm also reading um, headlines related to the effectiveness uh, or what, his, what Israel is seeing in terms of its caseload it says that the COVID cases in Israel have plunged some 45 percent after the second Pfizer vaccine, but they don't see that people who have just gotten the first dose um, are necessarily protected. Talk with us a little bit about one dose, two dose, and if you're if you're getting the kind that is supposed to be two dose, what if you only end up getting one dose? So that this is actually a great thing to talk about too. Um, one of the big things you're seeing worldwide right now in some countries is they're saying, well, let's just give a dose of these two dose series vaccines. Uh, because that way we can make sure that the most people get vaccinated. And there are a few problems I, I personally find with that. Number one is if you look at the studies, um, including the, the Pfizer and Moderna studies, the reason that we're recommending two doses in those is the first dose that people received actually conferred less immunity than natural immunity. Mm. So less immunity than natural immunity. But the second dose far surpassed natural immunity. So what that tells us in a short time frame, maybe these vaccines are about 80% effective. And that, that comes from the Pfizer study for, for a single dose. But that probably wanes a lot several weeks later. Um, and that's where that second dose comes in, that booster shot. And, and so I think like getting that second dose is so important, even when we hear these numbers like 80% effective, it doesn't mean it's going to last very long. And that's, that's actually the benefit of vaccines. Um, human immunity tends to be pretty variable. But what this what this actually does is it's like a more of a confirmatory immunity over a longer period of time with the vaccine. All right. And then um, let's touch on this headline. Younger COVID patients may have a higher likelihood of reinfection. Remind us what reinfection is and tell us what we're talking about when we say younger COVID patients, because, you know, younger could mean just about anything. So, so reinfection um is a little bit different than relapse. Relapse would be a case where someone doesn't get rid of their infection fully. They actually have it ramp up again. Reinfection is where you've actually fought off whatever infection you're dealing with the first time, 
and then a period of time passes and all of a sudden you get a new infection. Um, so, so what we're seeing with, with kids is you can still possibly be reinfected, but I think the encouraging thing to note there is that they are not at a very high risk of complications from that at large. Uh, now you contrast that with the flu and the flu has, is much more problematic in children and has been for some time. Well, it's interesting to look at our flu numbers. We've only had one flu death the entire year in children. Um, well, that's because they're not with each other in school. <laughs> it's interesting, right? I mean, right. It's interesting. Um, so, um, all right. And then uh, a couple of other uh, headlines. One of them um, about gout. And this is about COVID inflammation. And so I, I want to talk about that word as well. And maybe... Um, anything that would be you would encourage in terms of anti-inflammatory like i even read stuff about like anti-inflammatory food mm. yeah so uh, there's a medication we've long used for gout called colchicine and really what this medication um, helps to do is it prevents gout flare-ups where you have the formation of the crystals and joints that cause all that pain um what what happens in covid at least this is one of the theories is that you know we have this big systemic inflammatory response. We have this big cytokine storm, and that's that's the term that we've used a lot. Basically, mm -hmm. just means you have lots of inflammatory markers going all over the place, uh, almost short-circuiting your immune system. And the thought is that maybe colchicine could reduce the amount that that, that would actually occur. So there was a really small study that was done, and it was only about 70-some people, and, and they showed in, in one of the, the, the treatment arms, they showed that maybe there's a benefit in reducing how long the severity of the, these illnesses can last. Um, in particular, I think they reduced the duration of illness by about two days. But they actually still saw um, some, some deaths in that group. So I think where I, where I would say right now, sit right now on this, we just don't have enough data. It's a really small study. And I think in order to really scale that and understand its effects, we, we need a little bit more time in a bigger population. Um, as far as anti-inflammatories outside of that, there's a lot of theories that some food can cause more inflammation than others. Um, we've talked a lot about gut microbiomes in the past a couple of weeks, and I think that that plays a role in addition to it, food. Um, I, I would say, by and large, we don't necessarily have the data, though, to really say, like, here's the best way that you can prevent the inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, that's at least where I sit on that subject. Now, there are things you can do to boost your immunity. Um, I think vitamin D, there's actually a lot of evidence to say if you're low on vitamin D that you could have a more severe response to COVID. The evidence seems to be really leaning that way as an example. Yeah, we've been taking our vitamin D. So that's that's good. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah. OK, let's do one more thing. Um, lingering effects. Uh, lots and lots of folks. Um, I mean, I even know folks who like their sense of smell hasn't come back or they still have that brain fog. Talk with us a little bit about lingering effects. Yeah, I think probably probably the, the two two big ones that we see most people struggle with for a long period of time, outside of maybe some of the respiratory issues that sometimes hang around, are brain fog. So almost like uh, like mommy brain post-pregnancy that a lot of mothers talk about. It's actually really similar to that in some ways. Um, we see that happen in people. And then we also see just general fatigue, general tiredness. I, I have a student, and he wouldn't care that I share this, which is why I mentioned this right now. Uh, he, he actually had COVID over break and 
he ended up um, getting really sick and is still having significant fatigue, brain fog, and he has a lot of limb pain. So he has pain in his arms and his legs. Mm. And he's been over COVID for weeks and it's still persisting. Um, so, so there are a lot of things we don't necessarily understand about what the inflammatory response is doing and how it's affecting people. And there's so much variation that makes it very difficult to grasp how it may affect one person versus another. Um, but this is something we're going to continue to see. And I, I think what they're going to start to do in the long term is study these long term effects to find out if there are ways we can prevent that. So we talk about deaths, but I think we have to think about morbidity as well. What are the long term consequences with some of our patients? Mm. All right, Dr. Zach, thank you as always so much. Um, we look forward to our conversations. You help us understand the headlines that we're reading and, and you know, and equip us for the day ahead. So we, we genuinely appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. There is a lot going on in the political headlines of the day. The U.S. Supreme Court has ruled in a California church's case that uh, churches who were challenging California's restrictions during the pandemic uh, must be allowed to meet in person. So that's an important religious liberty case decided by the Supreme Court. The impeachment trial of former President Trump begins tomorrow in the U.S. Senate. Uh, We got a number of other headlines to cover as well. Adam Carrington will be here next. If your teen is struggling, you know the stress it brings inside a household. In fact, you might be feeling the stress right now. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. For married parents who want to help their teen through a crisis, it's critical to understand that the stress that comes with it may land squarely on your marriage. You may find that your relationship with your spouse is strained, tense, or even put in jeopardy. So make it a habit to talk through it together. See this crisis as something you must tackle together. Present a united front, get outside help if necessary, and don't blame each other for the stress in the family. Remember, parenting is not a his or her job. It's an us job. And together, you'll get through it. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me now, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We're going to cover a range of headlines related to what is going on in the United States of America. Adam, welcome back. Glad to be here. Hope everybody's staying warm. I just heard off air it's pretty cold in at least the, the Minnesota it's part. It's pretty cold. It's pretty cold everywhere. I'm not allowed to talk about it. Yeah, it's pretty cold. We're just, we're just going to say that. It's just pretty cold. Whew. All right, pretty and cold out where you are. Take send me some pretty cold pictures. Cold, pretty pictures of the cold. That's what I want. Okay, so let's talk about. Um, we got so many headlines to cover, Adam. Can we really quickly um, touch on the decision by the Supreme Court in the California Church's case? Or since I didn't send you that, are we not ready to talk about that? Uh, sure. It it, it continued a, a string of of victories for at least trying to treat churches similarly to other organizations as far as COVID restrictions. What was, I think, interesting this time 
was that there was a, a, a few splits within the Republican coalition, maybe to look for future uh, for the future. Gorsuch and Thomas are the most blanket. We're going to protect religious liberty claims. And you had the first opinion different from that from uh, Amy Coney Barrett, the new uh, Supreme Court justice, who joined Kavanaugh in saying, well, we're not going to go as far as that, but we're, we're, we're still willing to protect religious liberty. And, and where that could come up is maybe in some cases down the road, how, how far would a majority of those justices be willing to go? And it seems like uh, some are willing to go further than others, and we all have to see how that might play out in, in another case. All right. So that's that's really helpful. And that's something that we're going to continue to talk about as it unfolds. Um, Let's talk about the internal struggles in both the Democrat and Republican parties. Um, We got all kinds of things to look at, not just the uh, impeachment of the former president, but but really some some deep internal struggles in both parties. So I'm just going to sort of have that be my pitch to you to start this conversation. Right. And and the small back history to that is just there seemed to be fairly defined ideas of what a Democrat and Republican was from really the 1980s, if not a little before, until about 2016. And you, of course, had Donald Trump disrupting the status quo and the orthodoxy for the Republican Party, not just in temperament, but on trade and taxes and other things. But you also had Bernie Sanders in the Democratic Party, where there was a split between the kind of liberal corporate based left of Hillary Clinton and the more socialist, a bit uh, more populist socialist uh, realm of of Bernie Sanders. And you're seeing that continuing to play out. And it's, it's nastier right now within the Republican Party, partly because they didn't do they didn't win the presidency this last time and you're seeing censuring of of republicans that that voted to impeach the president but what what you're seeing is that the, the two sides of that party the the old part that appealed to more upper middle class educated professionals in the suburbs and the new working class element of the republican party and Neither, by the way, has been able to win a clear, decisive victory or majority since about 2008. Uh, A thing to remember about the Republican Party is it hasn't won a majority of the popular vote since 2004. But that's not to undermine the Democrats have been able to paper over some of their differences lately because they won. But the the uh, the the more leftist wing and certain Democrats that are trying to keep things toward the center to try to keep a hold of some of the old coalitions, they haven't even begun to work out their differences. So I think what you're seeing is both sides struggling for how do they get a coherent coalition of American voters that can consistently win elections. And there's rifts within both that we still have not seen resolved and 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 probably will not see yet going forward. And it's going to be interesting. All the old maps, all the old understandings, I think, are are starting to tear. And what we used to think of as, as a normal election map, what we used to think as a normal description of Republican and Democrat is, is much more up and continues to be much more up in the air. Okay, redistricting is going to be a super interesting conversation this year. So let's put a pin in that and come back to it because you're making reference to that in terms of maps, I think. Um, And then the other conversation that uh, I see bubbling up is the really strong expectation 
that people who I highly respect um, on both sides of the aisle are likely to be primaried um, from the left and or from the right, depending which party they're in. So if you are um, sane and, and, and centrist at all, if you're willing to talk across the aisle at all, you're likely to be primaried. Um, if you're a Democrat, you're likely to be primaried from the left. If you're a Republican, you're likely to be primaried from the right, um, which just makes the divisions uh, deeper and deeper and greater and greater. But the state parties really do control who um, who gets backed and who wins in those, you know, in those more local elections. I just it's it's a it's a really troubling time. And and something we had talked about on a, pr- a previous time, since these issues just continue to resurface in different ways, we had talked, uh, I think, before Christmas about the problem that the a lot of our politics now isn't based on trying to get certain things done, get certain policies in place, pursue certain concrete goals. It's very much a kind of culture war in a, in a very broad sense, broader than that's normally meant, battle between identities where people seem to see each other as mutually exclusive, as the enemy. And we, we've talked about that. But one interesting thing about if you're actually talking about concrete things like tax policy or tariff policy or, or, or whatever is there's actually room and space for, for, for horse trading. And that kind of compromise actually forces you to recognize some legitimacy in the other side's argument, which means you have to recognize some legitimacy in the other side. But that kind of work right now is actually seen as being a a traitor to your own side by uh, by many of the party activists. I think there are a number of people, you know, regular people that are a little tired of that. But uh, the people, like you said, that are running the state parties, they see it more as uh, where is your loyalty, not what are you trying to get done, I think. And I think that's that's been very problematic for, for, for not just getting things done, but how we actually view each other. Amen. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, a couple of very specific uh, opportunities on the table, uh, so to speak. We've got the COVID relief bill. We've got an impeachment hearing. And then we also have Senator Romney's child allowance plan. Um, which one do we want to tackle in the two minutes we have to before we have to take a break? Well, maybe since I said there's a problem of policy, I could say something positive because I think uh, Senator Romney's plan is really interesting. It's it's interesting that it came from him uh, that he put forward a plan that, in some ways, uh, tackles certain things that the left and the right, as currently constituted, claim to have a problem with. And this would, the core of this would be basically a, a monthly allowance given by the government to parents of children to help defray all the, the costs of, of raising children. And for the, the, the uh, political left, where it would help is it would, the way it's structured would massively decrease child poverty and address certain poverty issues that, that the left has really talked about. On the right, the the new nationalist populist uh, sort of the Josh Hollies and 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 Marco Rubio's now have really been pushing that the government needs to be more actively pro family and and it seems harder to see how much more you could be pro family than than redistributing this income directly to families and even for the more libertarian right it, this is supposed to be revenue neutral that Romney has done something to make it so that it it doesn't uh, uh, the the costs are even. 
And, and, and that last point, I think, matters because a lot of proposed legislation these days is mainly signaling, signaling to your side whose side you're on without much chance of anything getting passed. This actually seems serious. I don't know if it will get passed because of our partisanship, but it actually was written with the intent of trying to get something that would cross the aisle and, and do something to help poverty and American families. So uh, uh, it's, I wouldn't have picked Romney to be the one to have done something like that, but it would be a break with the trends we were just talking about in a good way. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that this is a bubble up from the people he knows the best across the country um, who know just how hard it is to raise a bunch of kids right now. But I won't um, I won't point to maybe where we think that comes from. But that's OK. There's lots of people out there having lots of kids and uh, and it's getting harder and harder to raise lots of kids. And so uh, I think the child allowance plan by Senator Romney is a very, very interesting uh, point of conversation where social conservatives who are pro-family and uh, and those maybe who are um, on the Democratic side of the aisle concerned about the relief of poverty and kids uh, who are going hungry right now. Like there's a very interesting point of inter- intersection uh, in this child allowance plan. All right, we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, I am going to have Dr. Adam Carrington talk with us about the COVID relief bill. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I am a All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, I'll just go ahead and tell you, as a fiscal conservative, um, I choke every single time I hear the numbers being proposed, not only for the COVID relief bill, but for a number of other um, spending priorities of the new administration. So talk with us uh, about the COVID, specifically about the COVID relief bill. Right. It, it it seems that the ship has sailed on fiscal restraint for, for both parties. And, and that was one thing about the Romney plan, just to say that if, if you've already accepted that both parties are going to do so, how would you spend the money? And and I, I hear you on that. I And this is a, a, another very large package that the way to really think about it in, in is that a lot of it augments what the previous very large spending package that was passed last last year, not the one in December, but the first one does. And some of it, I think, is necessary as long as you're going to have these government restraints on businesses and how much they can open and things like that, which is stuff like pr- funneling some money to small businesses where the market is not the reason this is happening. It's government restrictions. Other things like an increasing unemployment uh, benefits and things like that. The stuff that's a little harder to determine is to what degree a, a, a an, an additional $1,400 per person is needed because just as a blanket gift to, to many people, uh, which is being uh, given or not gift, but blanket additional payment. The other is, which I think this one won't get through, is increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which seems to not necessarily be something that is attached to COVID. It seems like trying to add just a, a more left-leaning spending priority. And then uh, the other thing that I think that I found one of the more troubling is they're trying uh, the Biden administration is trying to put a a moratorium on evictions from from housing, which 
has a good heart to it, uh, not wanting people to be kicked out of their homes, but could really seriously hurt those who who own these uh, uh, these properties and also just could really undermine the idea that a lot of our society is built on making contracts with each other where we promise to do things in, in exchange for other things. And that could that could be a serious problem for, for especially low-income housing in the future that I think could end up hurting the people it's actually trying to help. So there's some things I think in here that are necessary, but other things that I think are more just priorities of, of one partisan side trying to take advantage of a crisis. All right. And then um, in the few minutes we have left, let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, the impeachment proceedings, we um, we are going to actually see them begin in earnest tomorrow uh, in the U.S. Senate. What um, maybe what are some things you anticipate interesting, um, interesting observations you'd like to make? Well, I think on the on the uh, legal level, it's going to be interesting to see the arguments play out. We've already watched about to what degree it looks like Republicans are going to defend process and d- Democrats not argue process, but argue argue the actual uh, events that occurred. And what I mean by that is there's going to be an interesting debate between can you prosecute a now former president for what was accused of being done to him, and to what degree do we actually think what happened was impeachable? And those, I think, to some degree, people are going to talk past each other on those two points. The other is, I I think it's interesting politically, Andy McCarthy in National Review, who was a fairly pro-Trump conservative, but has turned on him post the January 6th and, 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 and election fraud claims and riots and things like that, has made an interesting argument that Democrats actually, to the degree that they know they might not have the votes to convict in the Senate, they're still politically, and this is not principle, this is not putting country first, but they're politically very interested in in having this trial because their calculation is that having President Trump and what he did front and center that won't cripple the Republican Party, but will undermine it. And that goes back to, I think, some of the debates going in on within the Republican Party, uh, whereas uh, where they're trying to decide what would be what's the future of president, former President Trump in the party? To what degree does he help or hurt us? And Democrats are making the calculation that the more he's in the news, the more it helps them. We'll, we'll, we'll see if that plays out on the political level in addition to the constitutional and legal level. Uh, I have uh, I have people um, asking whether or not you and I have watched Mike Lindell's uh, nearly three hour election fraud video. Um, I won't uh, I won't take that up with you right now, but I'm just letting folks know I'm reading their messages to me. Um, Another person wanting to know if you think that there's any chance that Romney's plan is a precursor to another presidential bid in 2024. No, I don't think so. One is his age, even though I know we just had two very old men run for president. And right now, Romney has basically made himself so uh, toxic to the Republican voter base with other things he's done that I just don't see what his coalition would be if he if he knows where he is in the party right now, unless there's seismic shifts. I don't see how he would have a constituency to win a primary battle with other 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 candidates at this point.
Okay, which might lead us the next time we talk into a conversation about these new parties that are uh, emerging. So, I don't know. I don't know. Could we ever outgrow a two-party system in America? Is that too big of a conversation to have in 30 seconds? I, I think I can say as long as we have the Electoral College and in the current uh, sense, no. I think you're always going to have two parties at least as the norm because it demands that anyone winning the presidency get not just the most electoral votes but an outright majority of all the electoral votes. And as long as you have to win a majority of the presidency, the parties are going to structure all of their elections from president on down to try to get uh, 50.1% of the electoral vote, that is that massively moves you toward a two-party system or prejudices you toward that. All right. See, it's always helpful to talk with you because, you know, you dash my hopes, but that's okay. Dr. Adam Carrington from <laughs> Hillsdale College, um, thank you as always so much. You do keep us um, focused on uh, on the truth and you keep us pretty sober about what's going on. We appreciate that. Well, thank you all for giving me a chance to talk with you all about it. Absolutely. We'll be right back. All right. In case you have not uh, read this headline from Saturday, former Secretary of State George Shultz, uh, he was a prominent economist. He played a pivotal role in ending the Cold War. He died on Saturday. He was 100 years old. He served as a distinguished fellow at the Hoover Institution, a professor emeritus at Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Um, and you will remember that he, he served as not only Labor Secretary and Director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Nixon, he also served six years at pre- as President Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State. He negotiated the first treaty to downsize the Soviet Union's arsenal of ground-based nuclear weapons. Um, he involved himself um, in the Middle East conflict. He successfully brokered an agreement between Israel and Lebanon um, during their civil war in the 1980s. I just, uh, I just wanted to highlight... His his role um, in America's uh, in America's past, celebrate his life um, and just recognize that um, life is um, full of opportunities to uh, press the force of uh, of these days that God has given us um, into doing good. And so let me encourage you today to press the full force of your life into advancing the gospel, something that whether you live to be 100 or whether you live to be a 20 um, will redound into eternity. And so I just want to encourage us to be ambassadors of the king and the kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world today. We got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.